Welcome to New Books and Political Science. I'm Heath Brown. Today I spoke with Lisa Garcia Bedola, who is the author, along with Melissa Michelson, of Mobilizing Inclusion, Transforming the Electorate Through Get Out the Vote Campaigns. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Welcome to New Books and Political Science. Lisa, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. It was a real pleasure to read your book, uh, the book that you authored with Melissa Michelson, who uh, wasn't able to be with us today. But the two of you wrote this really, really interesting book, I think, on uh, both timely and also um, really pushing some areas of, of the academy that, that haven't been pushed in this way in the past. And so really look forward to talking to you about the book. Before we get to that, maybe you can just talk a little bit about who you are, and what came before this project. So I am uh, the chair for the Center of Latino Policy Research here at UC Berkeley and also an associate professor in the School of Education and the Political Science Departments. I have worked on um, Latino politics and and sort of racial and ethnic politics more generally. I have uh, two books other than this one, one called Fluid Borders, Latino Power, Identity, and Politics in Los Angeles, which looks at how class and uh, racial identity affects the types of civic engagement Latinos participate in. And then another book called Latino Politics, which looks at how U.S. foreign and economic policy affects migration patterns from Latin America and also the types of political opportunities available to Latino immigrants once they get here. That's great. And this book builds so nicely on that. How about your co-author? What is the basis of your collaboration? Melissa, well, on the more informal level, she and I have known each other since graduate school. We, we both went to Yale University in political science. And um, Donald Green, also we know him from there as well. He was another collaborator on the broader project. Melissa has also specialized in Latino politics and was one of the first scholars to start doing experimental research among Latinos. So that's how we come together for this project. That's great. And I know that you wanted to be uh, uh, a part of this today. And so... Um, it's, you know that, that her contribution is really is really meaningful to this book project. So yeah. what I really like about this book um, is the effort to to bring together these these two unmet but but frequently sought goals, which is first to introduce more rigorous social science methods into the work of nonprofits, and then second for the academy to do to work much more closely with the community. And I think this book you know kind of remarkably does both of these so very well. So much so that you call yourself pracademics in the book. So if, if the way I've summarized this is okay, what is a pracademic exactly? I guess on the most basic level, it's following the principle that the work that we do, and I think especially for, for folks who are interested in ethno-racial communities, um, to make sure that the work that we do has a broader impact on, on society in terms of, of making our world more inclusive, more democratic, um, and using the tools of social science to advance practice. And so that's one of the things that really drew us to this project is an opportunity to take these rigorous methods that we have in political science and to use them in a real-world application in order to arrive at a set of best practices for other organizations to use to engage these voters. Yeah, and how many books and how many articles have ended with that, with a call to do just that, and, and rarely is it actually done. And so I think that alone separate from actually the hard work that you did in putting the, the, the book together, is it really makes it an interesting read. So before we get to the actual sort of content of, of what you guys did and sort of the scale of it is, is, is almost hard to describe, <laughs> uh, just working with, we're, having worked with just a small number of groups, 
It's it's difficult. You worked with dozens and dozens, and well, I'll let you talk uh, sort of about how this was done. But before we get to this, um, so what do we know prior to these ex- uh, extensive experiments about get out the vote? What did what did the literature tell us before you and and your collaborators? You were working with lots of other people who've been doing similar kinds of work. But what what did we know before we got up to this sort of experimental phase in the literature? You mean you mean before we, Don Green and Alan Gerber's work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of what is what is known outside of the experimental work on get out the vote? I mean, some of this was kind of the the anecdotes or the sort of the the beliefs. And and you were able to test a lot of these things. But maybe you just sort of summarize sort of what was what was known before we got into this more rigorous effort to really figure out what works and get out the vote. Right. So I think the most classic piece on this is Rosenstone Hansen's book. Um, where they essentially argued that the the gap in political participation that has happened in the United States is is almost entirely attributable to the decrease in political mobilization um, during campaigns, and they use observational data to to prove that. Jen Lagley in her book um, found also that mobilization was really important for ethno-racial voters and that um, they were less likely than other groups to have that kind of contact from campaigns. Similarly, Robert Schlossman and Brady uh, showed that there were significant differentials in terms of reports of contact, contact across different types of voters. So we knew um, that contact was important. We knew that mobilization was important, and we knew that it was uh, differentially available depending upon you know, what type of voter we were talking about. I think what we didn't know from that work was sort of the magnitude of these differences and to really be able to isolate the causal mechanisms that were at work. Yeah, and, and before we even get up to those experiments, you, you developed uh, in some ways an alternative approach, which you describe as your socio, uh, uh, socio-cultural cognition model. So what goes into that model? What's, what, is, what is that all about? So the model really came out of our findings, which were that, that these efforts do work with these voters, which at least at the time when we launched this initiative wasn't entirely certain from the literature. And what we came to afterward was that given that most of political behavior research has argued that that resources, be they socioeconomic or community level social capital or information, right, depending on which literature you're talking about, are most critical for turnout, we sort of had the conundrum that these folks' resources didn't change as a result of these very short interactions with voters, with canvassers, and yet their their behavior did. And so with this model, we're trying to... uh, point out um, both that there are cognitive shifts that need to happen within individuals in order for them to adopt a voting identity, but also the reason we have the social cultural part is that, that those cognitive shifts have to be situated within that individual voter's set of kind of personal identifications as well as within their both historical and community level context. And so you kind of have to understand how all those things are interacting if you want to understand why particular voters are receptive to these GOTV message and why other ones aren't. And I'd like to go back to sort of maybe at the conclusion, talk a little bit about some of these ideas of the the habit and practice of voting and sort of write about that at chapter seven or or eight or so. Um, But let's talk about actually sort of what what happened here. And so you had to work with with what looked like dozens and dozens of organizations in order to carry some of this out. You and your collaborators working with them. How did you do this exactly? And, you know, where did the funding come from? Because this was kind of a a very large effort. Um, how much uh, work did you have to do individually with o- each organization to make sure that they kind of understand the understood the social science purpose 
of the project and, and maintain kind of the integrity of, of these experiments? Right. So this, this book is the product of what was called the California Votes Initiative, which was a multi-year funding initiative sponsored by the James Irvine Foundation. They launched it in 2005. And it was specifically targeted to change the, uh, the California electorate. The California electorate right now is not representative of the state population. And so the idea was to try to get low propensity uh, ethno-racial voters to, in fact, turn out at a rate, you know, commensurate with their proportion of the population. What was unique about the effort was that they decided from the beginning that they wanted to have a rigorous social science evaluation as part of the funding initiative and that the goal of the funding initiative, in addition to helping these organizations do this work and increase their capacity, would also be to arrive at a set of best practices based on this strong evidence base um, that other organizations could use to, to mobilize these types of voters. And so they actually selected the evaluation team, which was myself, Melissa Michelson, and, and Don Green, who's now at Columbia, um, to, to do this work before they even did the RFP for the grant. And part of the requirement of, of getting the money on the part of the organizations was that they would agree to a third-party evaluation. And as you can imagine, this was, this was very innovative and it was very new, and, and the organizations rightly were somewhat nervous about having third parties who they, they didn't know, had no established relationship with, coming in and, and sort of saying whether they were doing a good job or not. So a big part of this effort was just building the trust necessary, explaining the methodology, explaining our purpose, but also really building the trust necessary to say that, you know, it wasn't about us making them look bad. It was really an attempt to to be experimental, to try different things and to really isolate the most effective um, tactics, not only for them, but also for other organizations. But I have to say the fact it was really what we learned was that this required a lot of a lot of meeting, a lot of conversation, a lot of um, discussion about, you know, how the organizations felt about this. It, it needed to be multi-year. It was good that it was multi-year because we were able to build that trust, you know, across the electoral cycles. Um, the foundation was great in that they funded uh, annual convenings as part of this so that it was not only that we were meeting with the organizations and talking to them, but they also had the opportunity to meet with each other and to, and to talk about these strategies as a collective and to really get that sense of common purpose um, as part of this initiative. But, you know, as with any sort of innovative effort, there were bumps in the road. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but in the end, you know, I think, I think we ended up doing some really amazing work. And um, the, the last thing I was going to say, I just want to say about that is that you know, it, for the 2008 elect elections, the three elections that were held in California in 2008, we were able to feel the team of observers to, walk with canvassers or to listen to phone bankers in order to get a better sense of these campaigns and that that actually wouldn't have been possible had we not had those two prior two years of sort of trust building and relationship building in order for the organizations to feel comfortable about that level of, of scrutiny um, of their efforts, you know, on our part. So I think the fact that it was longitudinal, the fact that it was iterative and that it was so large really helped I think do something really different in both the academy and in community organizing. Yeah, and and uh, maybe the the best way to sort of think about these is to think about some of you, some of the examples where um, you found evidence of things just not working. Not that the organization failed, but that the tactic failed, and also ones that did work. And so maybe we can start with with what you found didn't work. Is there an example of an experiment? that uh, maybe you went in thinking that this was really, this is one of the ones that was going to work, but in fact, 
either had null findings or, or maybe even something else. Is, is there one that stands out for you in, in terms of a, we now know that this tactic doesn't work? Yes. So the one that, I guess there's, there's the one that's more substantive and the one that I think is more funny. Um, so mm-hmm. the first is just we tried um, informa- an, doing an exper- experiment that really tested the kind of information people got in a mailing. And so with our Asian American organizations, we tested um, sending voters an e- what's called the Easy Voter Guide in here in California, which is produced by the League of Women Voters, which is sort of a simplified version of the sample ballot because California sample ballot is huge and, and unmanageable. And then compared to just a simple piece of mail. And we really thought giving voters, we, we thought that a lot of the reason why voters don't vote is because they just don't have enough good information. And so we really believe that, that the, having that high quality information in language would really have made a difference in, in terms of GOTV. And while it did have a slightly greater impact than the, than the simple mailing, it, it didn't have a, a significant impact on turnout. So that was one I was really surprised about. The one that's more funny is that uh, this was as part of the overall finding we have is the indirect methods such as mailings, if they don't include social persuasion, which we found in which other literature has shown, um, are not effective. And so we had one church group who decided that they were going to create a mailing that had a picture of Jesus on one side and a picture of the Virgin Mary on the other. And their argument was that voters will not throw away Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. But they did. And they, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't have an impact. And, and things like even calls from your local pastor, handwritten notes from your local pastor. We, we had some pretty elaborate uh, experiments looking at mailings, different types of mailings. And, and while they may have had other types of impacts, they definitely didn't make people turn out and vote. Yeah, I got, I got the sense, I don't know if you guys read this, the publisher, that you enjoyed writing the chapter titles. <laughs> well, you have to have fun in your work. That's right. And if you're right, if you can't have fun in your regression analysis, you might as well have fun with your chapter titles. Uh, if right. uh yeah, many people are going to be at least reading those. So that, and in some ways, so you cover in the book what what kind of you are able to verify doesn't work. But the more interesting part of the book is these things that you find that were both um, evidence of effective practices, but also ones that were evidence of practice way beyond what your expectations were. And so, so what worked? Um, the you had some uh, an interesting chapter about not just generic phone banking, but certain types of phone banking that, that really did work and worked in some dramatic ways with certain populations. And so what's the, what's the successful practice? Right. So that's actually, I think, the most exciting finding from, from this effort is what we call two-round phone banks. And essentially what that is is if you call voters the first time and you ask them if they plan to vote, most people will say yes. Some people do still say no, but most people say yes. If you focus your second round of cars calls on those yes voters, you can get double digit over 10% increases in turnout. And this has to be compared to a typical well-run phone bank will have a three to five percentage point impact on turnout. And so you're talking about doubling that effect to the point where it's, it's as effective, if not more so, than a well-run canvassing campaign. And this is really important for a number of reasons. It's important because phone banks are just a lot less expensive and require much less capacity to run than than door to door. Um, it's also important for groups like our Asian American organizations. We work with APALC and OCAPICA, um, and both of them were running phone banks in up to nine languages. And as you can imagine, it is pretty much impossible to field a canvassing team that can cover that linguistic spread. And so if you're targeting a community like Asian Americans that's geographically dispersed and linguistically diverse, a phone bank of this sort is actually a much better strategy to employ. And so 
we think that that we found it to be true in very large experiments with Asian Americans, um, two very large experiments with Latinos, and then in other work, it actually CalPERD used this with youth, and, and it was effective as well. And the last thing um, that was great was that APALC actually allowed us in one of the experiments to randomize the second call because there was a question as to whether or not we could really attribute the difference to that second call. And in fact, we found it was the second call. We randomized which one of the yes voters um, they called back, and it was the second call that made the difference. Yeah, and you know, and the finding across uh, racial ethnic group is is really interesting because the the demographics of the Asian American uh, community, and I, I don't know if it's true of in California, but it's true nationally, is is older uh, on average than than the Hispanic American community in many parts of the country, and so that effect of cell phones and and landlines would seem to be one of the questions people would ask about this finding, but. The fact that it holds up with youth voters and, and other voters suggests that there's something really there. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and the other finding we have that I think is important but may seem axiomatic for people who, who do community organizing is, is we found that, the, that these efforts work, that in-person efforts work with low propensity voters. And I think that's, that's important just because many campaigns don't target these voters because they believe it's not worth the effort or it would cost too much money or that somehow they need a different kind of outreach than likely voters. And, and I think it's important that we showed that, no, in fact, if you invite these voters into the polity, in fact, they do vote. Yeah. So you devote a whole chapter towards the end of the book about the habit of voting. And, and so what, is, what does practice have to do with your sociocultural cog- cognition model? What is, how does that enter into uh, one of the takeaways or one of the sort of larger findings about voting behavior? Well, so I, we feel like we have two big pieces of evidence that support our theoretical model. The first is, is just that these individuals are moved to vote given they have chosen to sit out in most of the last statewide elections, since that's usually the parameters that organizations use to choose who they included in their efforts. And then the second is we were able to show in California, you get a unique um, voter ID number that actually follows Mm -hmm. you regardless of where you move in the state. And so we were able to follow those folks that were in the in, in the treatment and control groups from basically the first election in June of 2006 all the way through. And we knew whether or not they were targeted for contact by one of the groups in subsequent elections. Um, since those folks were put back into the randomization in almost all cases. And we were also able to see whether they voted in November 2008, even if they had moved out of the area where they had originally been living. And what Mm -hmm. we find is that having been contacted once in any of the previous elections actually made you 30 percentage points more more likely to vote in the November 2008 election compared to the control group. So taking into consideration all of the different contextual issues, the fact it was a historical uh, historic presidential race, those kinds of things. In fact, it had a, a lasting impact. And so what we argue is that this this suggests that once you adopt this, once you have this cognitive shift and you engage in this behavior once, even absent other con- contact, the fact that you continue to engage in the behavior suggests that there is some kind of cognitive shift going on in that individual that is maintained over time. It's, and I think it's just, you know, one of the... Um you know, so for someone who um, I study uh, organizations, it's um, just one of those things about the repetition and the institutional history in these organizations that's part of what make a lot of them, um, uh, uh, what's part of their challenge is, is, is making sure that these kind of practices continue and the tactics continue in this effective way. And so 
maybe sort of moving towards just the end of the book, you, the book describes lots of the ins and outs of the actual tactics. Well, what about some of the normative conclusions that you can draw from this? What does this say about what, what society or organizations or government ought to be doing if, if uh, these findings are taken seriously? Right. So what's interesting is when I have presented this book to community organizations or community folk, um, often the response is, who really cares about voting? Does voting matter? Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is that if voting didn't matter, you wouldn't have had such ongoing um, efforts to restrict it. Right. We can go in the most recent period. We have all these voter ID laws and, and restrictions to voter registration efforts. Historically, we have poll taxes and all of the other things we've done to restrict the franchise for different groups in the United States. So I think if it, if it didn't matter, then we wouldn't try to keep people out to the extent that, that we do in this country. And with simple things like the fact that election day is not on the weekend, things that other countries do that we don't do. So I think that's, that's the first point. Um, the second is, is to really think about what, what we call, so we end up arguing that what's going on when these voters choose to vote because they come from these populations that historically have not been included in the franchise or have not been as represented in the electorate as, as they should that, in fact, they're engaging in what we call governmentality from below. And I uh, adopt that term from a scholar named Apadurai, who uses it to describe slum dwellers in Mumbai who go about census-taking of themselves in order to bring themselves to the attention of government. And so we're arguing that, in fact, if you if you contact these voters and they vote, and they continue voting, which is what our work suggests that they do, and if there is the spillover into their households that David Nickerson's work suggests happens, which is that there's a 60 percentage point maintenance of that turnout effect on household members from the voter who was contacted. If all those things are true, you could imagine that an effort like this could have an exponential impact over time on really changing who the voters are within these communities. And that by definition, having those voters be present in the electorate will force government officials to actually take them more seriously. And so in, in the final chapter, we go through um, a number of different findings from political science that show that, that elected representatives are more responsive to wealthy voters and to likely voters. And so at the very least, if, if these members of these communities turn into likely voters, we think that it's likely that then they will have more of a say in the kinds of policies that come out of government, and, and we would argue making our democracy more legitimate by definition because it's, it's more representative of the population as a whole rather than just those folks who now, because of their socioeconomic status or other factors, are the ones that are being paid attention to. So what's up next for you? Are you continuing with this line of research in the context of the 2012 election, or do you have new projects ahead of you? Uh, I have some some new projects um, I'm not doing. I know Melissa is engaging in a lot of experiments around 2012. Um, I'm doing more, I guess, traditional uh, survey work around 2012, uh, looking at some of the initiatives uh, that are on the ballot here in California and, and how they're being seen by different groups of voters. So I'm still interested in this sort of intersectional analysis of thinking about how different types of voters um, interact with the political system. And I'm also doing some, I, I've become a fan of GIS, and so I've, I'm doing some work through my center to try to think about how do we use GIS to situate children and youth in their neighborhoods to really kind of talk about the opportunity structures where there are, um, both in terms of education, but also civic engagement and, and, and voting, you know, within within particular neighborhoods. So I'm trying to 
build on our understanding of that social cultural context and, and come up with better tools on, on how we measure it and how we can really talk about um, the spaces where folks are located and the ways in which kind of the political and um, economic opportunity structures that that affords them. Mobilizing Inclusion, Transforming the Electorate Through Get Out the Vote campaign was published this year by Yale University Press. Lisa, thank you so much for your book, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it very much.